Well, some time ago now, a few weeks back, when we started a series on the Proverbs, we started reading through the Proverbs, studying through some of the Proverbs, at least, in search of wisdom. And at the time, I quoted from R.C. Sproul when he said, very simply, right now counts for forever. That statement can be viewed as a very brief summary of the biblical worldview concerning humanity and where everything is heading. Right now counts for forever. At the end of Ecclesiastes, a book intended to consider the brevity and meaning of life from a philosophical point of view, Solomon said it this way. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. After he considered life from a number of different perspectives, he said, that's the end. After thinking about every aspect of life from all different angles, from the perspective of one who believes in God and also from the perspective of those who don't believe in God, that's really all he walked away from life with is that the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments because he will bring everything into judgment. In the Proverbs, Solomon summed it up this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom, the skill of living life well in a world in which God is indeed the sovereign ruler and judge. That kind of skill, that kind of wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. You need to fear God, honor him, respect him, obey him, worship him with your life. In order to live life well, you have to have that perspective that everything you do ought to be done for his glory. Again, right now counts for forever. Well, you may say that's fine. That's the Old Testament, but now we're under grace. And so we don't have to worry about judgment, right? I mean, Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And certainly that is true. And yet Paul also indicated that while there isn't an eternal judgment, which is reserved for the unbeliever, unbelieving there is still a judgment for the people of God second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 Paul says for we we including himself we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil there is a judgment of sorts for the believer Salvation is eternal. The reward of heaven will never be rescinded. But there is still a judgment, an evaluation of how you have lived as a believer, how you've lived your life. This is why Paul says in the next verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. By that, he indicated the ministry that he had been given by the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that there is a judgment for the believer, compelled Paul forward in his ministry and the exercise of his gifts and the pursuit of the purposes for which Jesus had called him and set him apart as a believer. That compelled Paul forward in life. Paul expressed this desire, in other words, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when he said, But I do not consider my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was his ministry, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was the reason that Jesus had called him and set him apart, and he says, I don't consider my life of any value unless I do that, and unless I finish that ministry, unless I fulfill that purpose. There's nothing else for me to do in life. This is why I'm here. Paul believed that was true for himself, and he exhorted believers likewise. In those cases, Paul exhorted the church to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We frequently discuss the idea of what it means to walk. It is simply a term indicated, indicating the, the character of one's life. How they live is how they walk. He's saying that you ought to walk or live in such a way that is worthy of your calling. The idea behind worthy, there's a, the verb there. Uh, translated worthy or worthily or suitably literally means bringing up the other beam of the scales bringing something into equilibrium in other words the character of your life your manner of living should be brought into balance should be equivalent to your calling in Christ and the idea of calling is fairly simple right God has called us 
to himself in salvation. He's called us for a particular purpose. We're not called to be inactive. We're not called to sit. We're called to serve. In other words, when Paul says walk in a manner worthy of your calling, he says walk in a way that is equivalent to the reason that you were called by God in Christ. Do what God has called you to do in Christ. Be the kind of person that God has called you to be in Christ. Pursue his purposes. Live for his glory. Remember that you, were evalu- you will be evaluated at the end of your life according to that standard. Not according to the standard that you got all you wanted to out of life, but according to the standard that you have fulfilled the purpose for which he called you. We read this exhortation of Paul's four times in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul prayed for the church at Colossae that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. To the church at Philippi, he wrote in chapter 1 verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. To the church at Thessalonica in chapter 1 verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 12, he exhorted, he, he said that he exhorted each one and encouraged each one and charged each one. You hear that? He exhorted and encouraged and charged each one to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And to the church at Ephesus, he wrote, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I wonder, Christian, do you have that in mind? Do you, do you live your life in accord Again, not with your standard of what is good and right and true, not with the world standard or your family's expectations of you, but that you live in accord with the standard of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Do you live according to his purposes for you? Are you living out the purpose for purposes for which Jesus has called you by his gospel? I want to explore that question over the next four weeks by considering four things that we must do as a church. These are four imperatives, four reasons why Jesus Christ has called his church into existence and four things that we must pursue. In the past, we've talked more thoroughly about two of these four, the pursuit of the unity and the spread of the gospel. But I've added two more to this short series because I think all four are crucial for our focus moving forward as a church. And certainly if you were to ask this question to others, what are the most important things for the church to do? You might you might find um, Eight, you might find 12. I know that uh, there's a very popular nine marks kind of book out there, but um, we're just going to stick with these four as we consider the ministry of the Catonsville Baptist Church. As we're celebrating 100 years of ministry this year, as we consider the next, what the next 100 years might look like. And those four things are very simple. We must pursue the unity of the gospel. We must preach the gospel. We must protect the gospel. And we must praise God for the gospel. We must pursue the unity of the gospel. We must preach the gospel. We must protect the gospel. And we must praise God for the gospel. This morning we're just going to consider the first of those four. One thing that we must do as a church is we must pursue the unity of the gospel. And for that we'll look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. We're going to focus just on the six verses, but I think we'll, we'll end up getting into a bit of a summary toward the end there. There's not enough time to cover all of it, but we'll see how far we get. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And your word is truth. As Jesus prayed, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, and that through those, that vision of what is wonderful, what is good and right and true, that you would, you would sanctify our minds, our attitudes, our actions. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. We are to pursue the unity of the gospel. Paul says in our text that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called by being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Thinking generally about this text, we see the conviction of our walk in the first part of verse one and verse two. We see the exhortation for our walk. That's primarily in verse three. And then we see the foundation of our walk, that's in verses 4 through 16. The conviction, the exhortation, and the foundation. Let's look first at the conviction of our walk. Again, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We know that whenever we see a therefore in the text, it is intended to encourage us to consider what came before. That's a logical conclusion. It may not be the final conclusion, but it is a logical conclusion based on what he said before. The therefore harkens back to the previous section, really all of what Paul has said before. In the previous section in chapter 3, Paul prays for the church to be empowered to know the love of God so that they could love one another for his glory. The church exists to pursue his purposes, to bring glory to him. He has lavished us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's poured out his immeasurably great power on us. He's raised us from spiritual death into life. He's united us in one new body as one new race of humanity called the church. And he's done all that for the express purpose of bringing glory to himself. He says in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is God's desire for the church. That's why he has invested so much in the church, that he might be glorified in her. As Paul implores the church, based on that truth, he identifies what ought to be the conviction of every believer. What should be our conviction, our mindset? Well, we ought to desire to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That should be clear. We ought to desire to do this no matter the cost. And really, that's the pattern of those who have gone on before us. And that's what Paul offers here. He offers himself as an example when he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. He's saying, in effect, I'm not urging you or imploring you to live in this way as one who's never done it. I'm not giving you a direction or guidance from an ivory tower. I live this way. This is the way I live. Paul often identified himself primarily with respect to his calling in Christ. He says, Paul, an apostle in chapter one here, he calls himself a prisoner for the Lord Jesus. He said that also in chapter three, he understood that to be his calling. He was to suffer. He lived according to this purpose. We talked it from Acts chapter 20, verse 24 before again. 
He didn't consider his life of any account as dear to himself, but only to finish the course and the ministry given to him by Christ. Paul said, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I live for. This is why I'm in prison even. He understood that his calling was to serve Jesus, to preach the gospel, and also to suffer. That was a part of it. And he was okay with that. He often spoke of his attitude towards suffering, his understanding of suffering to other believers, to Timothy, his protege, his, uh, his, his son in the faith. He said this, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have first share of the crops. He's using all of these illustrations here. He says, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. Think about all these different illustrations in life. A soldier's aim is to please the one who enlisted him so he doesn't get distracted. An athlete isn't crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And part of that involves the way they train, how they train, and the way they compete. A hardworking farmer is, takes the first share of the crops. All of that is an illustration of suffering. Then he says, remember Jesus Christ. If you want to talk about suffering, remember Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Do you think he had to suffer in his life? He was beaten. He was bruised. He was battered. He was misunderstood in life. And ultimately, he had to die for the sake of the fulfilling his father's wishes. He says, Jesus Christ is the offspring of David. Why does that matter? Well, David suffered. David suffered in life. He says, it's preached in my gospel. And he goes on from there. Back to our text, the point that he's making to the Ephesians is that they also should see their life of no account, but that they may finish the course and ministry that Christ has given him that they may walk in a manner worthy of his calling, again, no matter the cost. I wonder, do you have that perspective in life? Are you seeking to live in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ, no matter the cost? The conviction, the mindset of every believer ought to be at least that, but it is more than that. We ought to desire to follow the pattern of the apostles, of Jesus himself, of those who walked in a long line of those being willing to suffer for the glory of God, to pursue his purposes. But we should also submit to the power of the Spirit. Walk in a manner worthy, he says, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul made clear that in order to have unity, we need the power of God. We need the power of God through the Spirit of God. This is indicative of God's sovereignty in our salvation. He is at work in us, powerfully at work in us, through his Holy Spirit. We still have the responsibility to act. These verses here remind us of our responsibility to work, to act, as we respond to the work of the Spirit in our lives. He says, with all humility... We need to be humble. Humility is the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of boasting, considering oneself superior. In Christ, all boasting is excluded because apart from Christ, we're all dirty, rotten, stinking sinners deserving of his judgment. No one is excluded from that club. Conversely, in Christ, we have all experienced the grace of God, the riches of his kindness, his mercy, his power in raising us from spiritual death into new life. No one in Christ is excluded from those things. None of us got here on our own, by our own strength, our own goodness. Therefore, there's absolutely zero room for pride in the body of Christ. No one is better than another. He says, with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness is the opposite of roughness. We ought to be gentle with each other in the body of Christ for the same reason that we ought to be gentle with those in our homes. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. You may be tempted to treat a stranger poorly or to speak to them roughly because you'll likely never see them again. But family you see daily. You sleep under the same roof. You eat the same food. You live with them. So it's in your best interest to do good to them, to treat them well. You're gentle with family. In the context of Jew-Gentile relations in the church, this, humanly speaking, mixed audience 
There would have been relational issues that arose from time to time. And it would have been easy to treat the other person, the non-Jewish person or the non-Gentile person, to treat them differently. Paul says, no, we are to treat everyone the same. We're to treat everyone with gentleness. The term gentleness is qualified by all, just as humility, all humility and gentleness, meaning that we should be that way to a great degree. Great humility and great gentleness ought to be the way by which we pursue unity to the glory of God. Moving on with all humility and gentleness, with patience. The word in the original is macrothumia. It's a compound word. Macro, we know, something that is big or large. We use that word in English. The second part, thumas, or thermal, has to do with heat, something that is hot or boiling. We get the idea passionate. Put it together, you have something that takes a lot to boil over. It takes a lot to get hot. We get the idea of long-suffering from this. Being patient means that you're not quick to become angry. There may be a circumstance or a person who offends you, and by all accounts, you may be right to be offended. Nevertheless, you're not quick to respond in anger. Again, in this context of a mixed group, there will be circumstances and interactions that cause you to become offended. It's inevitable. A believer should never be the kind of person to tell another believer off. A believer should never be the kind of person quick to respond in anger towards one another. We should be patient. That's the point. Slow to anger. He says, bearing with one another in love. We should be patient, bearing with one another in love. We have the phrase, bear with me. We're asking someone to tolerate an otherwise disagreeable scenario for our sake. Bear with me. Christians are to bear with one another. In the context of the body of Christ, again, as we engage with one another, we're to bear with one another's shortcomings, with one another's idiosyncrasies. We're to bear with one another's lack of sanctification in one area or another. We're to bear with one another in love. There is a qualitative difference between the love of the world and the love of God. It's good for us to consider that for a moment. The love of the world says, accept me and celebrate me however I am. The love of God says that we are to bear with one another precisely because we know that we're imperfect for the sake of God's love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God was poured out on us while we were still sinners. In other words, he didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to figure it out. He loved us while we were still sinners. And he also makes clear that we are sinners. He doesn't shy away from stating the truth and stating it plainly. What you're doing is sin. It's wrong. But even though that's true, I still love you. In order for the love of God to shine forth in us and through us, we ought to be willing to love bearing with one another's shortcomings. Love ought to characterize everything that we do, specifically the love of God. Jesus said this in John chapter 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There is, of course, one sense in which we're supposed to love everyone, right? To do good to everyone. And yet if we do good to everyone in a general sense and that's all we ever do, I mean, that doesn't tell anyone that we're Christian. There are a lot of really good people out there, right? There are a lot of philanthropists I think that's the word a lot of people who do good they, they give for good reasons they give their money away perhaps if they have a lot so they can get that nice write off you know tax write off but doing good is not the sum total of what it means to be a Christian doing loving things to everyone is not the sum total of what it means to be a Christian Jesus was very particular when he made this statement he said by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul said it this way in Galatians, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. This loving one another is significant. We know that we have the responsibility to proclaim the gospel. Sometimes we do that with words. 
with tracts, by inviting people to church. But this text in John chapter 13 makes clear that a part of our witness to the world has to do with specifically how we treat one another, how we love one another, and to the point of Ephesians, how we bear with one another in the context of the body of Christ. We've all heard someone say and perhaps have said ourselves, I just can't get along with so-and-so. Well, if you're a Christian and they're a Christian, that's a lie. You can, but you're choosing not to. We have the same spirit and the spirit does not fail. Thus, you can get along. You can love them. You're choosing not to. You're willingly being disobedient to the command of Scripture when you fail to love. You're unwilling to love, unwilling to bear with the weaknesses of others, unwilling to be gentle, unwilling to be humble. You're fighting against the power of God that is at work in us so that we can do that very thing. love of God is qualitatively different from the love of the world, and that ought to be true in our lives and our interactions with one another. This kind of love can be difficult, but that's precisely why we have the Spirit dwelling in us. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes that very clear. He says it is the fruit of the Spirit that is at work in us. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in that list, he led with love, not because love is more important, but because it's more significant. And because love tends to, tends to shape and mold all of the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit that is born by the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit is not broken in you. It's not like the Holy Spirit fails in you. When you fail to love, it's because you choose not to love. To the contrary, when we submit to the work of the Spirit in our lives, when we submit to the love that God is working in our lives, then we are able to bear with the weaknesses, failures, frailties, and faults of others. And we're able to serve them no matter what, no matter what the cause. This is the kind of love, for example, that gets up on every Sunday morning to drive a van around to pick people up to bring them to church. This is the kind of love that visits people in a hospital even when it's convenient or when they have to work. This is the kind of love that calls others during the week to see how they're doing, to chat with them, to pray with and for them, even if they're not strong enough to do the same for you. This is the kind of love that serves during potlucks, that shows up at outreaches, that cuts the lawn or weeds the garden bed in front, the kind of love that looks for opportunities to serve around the church whenever there is a need, to meet a need that they hear about, a ride home, a grocery run, snow shoveling, furniture moving, a card in the mail, a note dropped off at someone's doorstep, to let someone know that they're prayed for their love, whatever it is. This is the kind of love that does these things, even when it's inconvenient, messy, difficult, through misunderstandings, through trials, when it's too hot, when it's too cold, no matter the cost. This is the kind of love that we ought to have, that spirit-driven love that enables us to bear with the weaknesses of others while still endeavoring to serve others for Christ's sake. All of these things, all of our convictions, the desire to walk in a pattern of those who have gone on before us, desiring to accomplish the will of God at any cost, a desire to walk in the power of the Spirit who makes us into people who are humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. All of these convictions should move us to obedience. And that leads us to the next point, the exhortation for our walk. And this is the primary command that Paul gives in this passage. Look again at verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We've talked about what that means. Here in this context, Paul makes it more explicit. He says that we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word translated eager means to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation, to be zealous, to take pains, to make every effort. There's a sense of urgency in the term. This is something that you should make every effort to do. It ought to be a focus. This is a priority for every believer, an imperative must. We must be eager. 
We must take pains. We must make every effort to maintain, keep, preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Listen, the unity of the spirit is something that we already have. That's what Paul's words mean here. All of what he said up until this point is pointed to that truth. We have unity in the spirit. We just need to maintain it. We need to keep it. We need to tend it, to care for it, to see that it's taken care of. And we must do so with diligence, with eagerness. The world is striving to be at peace. The world is hoping to create peace from unrest. The church does not ever have to create peace in the body of Christ. God has made peace in the church through the Lord Jesus. He himself is our peace. And he's made us both into one. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. The death of Christ on the cross is what brings peace between us and God. And the death of Christ on the cross is what gives us peace within the body of Christ. There's no qualitative difference between those who are in Christ. We're all equally beloved of God, equally redeemed by God, equally recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He himself is our peace. He is the one who has established peace among his people. So we don't need to create peace in the body of Christ. We just need to be eager to preserve it, to maintain it. This ought to always be our attitude. One author said it this way. Because of the work of the Spirit who incorporates us into this new body, believers experience the reality of a new community where there are no racial divisions or schisms of any kind. It is incumbent on believers to preserve this unity that has been attained at a great cost. The peace that Christ has given is like a rope that ties believers from diverse backgrounds together into a unified whole. He says the word Paul uses here for bond is related to a term at the beginning of the passage that describes his imprisonment. Paul is a prisoner. And just as Paul is bound to his guard by his chains, he wanted the believers in Asia Minor to be bound together in peace and in love. We ought to always be eager to do whatever is necessary to maintain the peace that already exists within the body of Christ. And as much as God has granted peace and unity to his church, our responsibility, again, is simply to preserve it. Paul prayed for the unity here in, in Ephesians. Twice he prayed for the body of Christ in chapter 1 and also chapter 3. But we remember that Jesus also prayed for our unity in John 17. In John 17, verse 11, Jesus said, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He says, I do not ask, in verse 20, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. And for our Bible study participants out there, you heard a repeated phrase over and over in those verses that they may be one. That was in Jesus's mind. That was on his heart. That was something that he repeated in his prayer to his father, because that was the most important thing in top of mind for him, that we be one as the body of Christ. Jesus didn't pray for the church to have her best life now. He didn't pray for her to have wealth and prosperity. He didn't even pray for her to do social good in the world, to be champions of social change. That's not what Jesus prayed for. He prayed that we be one, that we be unified. This is the will of God for his people, that we ought to be diligent about preserving that unity. I like the way one author describes it. He says, if we are quick to get angry, we need to work on patience. If we have the tendency to be proud, arrogant, egocentric, and boastful, and who doesn't struggle with these, he said, we need to work on humility. If we are insensitive, bullish at times, rough, bossy, or quick to impose on others, we need to work on gentleness. 
If we struggle with being intolerant with the shortcomings of others, we need to work on bearing with one another in love. If unity among fellow believers in our local churches is not a priority for us, we need to make it a priority. If ardent pursuit of unity between churches in our cities is not a priority, we also need to make this a priority, he says, end quote. We certainly need to be praying that those things are true of us. Again, as we are looking at Paul's exhortation, he's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and to the point of Ephesians, we're to walk as a people unified by God for the glory of God. We should have the same conviction of those who have gone on before us. We should walk according to their pattern. We should pursue the glory of God, pursue his purposes no matter the cost. We should do this in the power of the Spirit, humbly, gently, patiently, forbearing in love, eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit. There is an organic unity already present in the body of Christ among the people of God, and we must be eager to maintain that. In the rest of the section from verses 4 through 16, Paul continues to elaborate on how. How do we eagerly preserve unity? What is the foundation of our unity? He says two things. One, the glory of God, the unity that God possesses within himself. And second, the grace of God, the enablement that God gives to his people. Now just summarize these two. Look at verses 4 through 6. We see the glory of God, the unity that God possesses within himself. That is the part of the foundation of our unity. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And we see here the unity and diversity of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit are reflected in the unity and diversity in the church. In this text, there are seven ones. One is repeated, but three triplets. There are three different aspects of the ministry of each member of the Trinity. We see the ministry of the Spirit in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your calling. There is only one body of Christ. Paul made this clear in the letter already. Again, chapter 2, verse 14. He himself is our peace who made us both into one. In verse 15, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. We are one in Christ. We're brought together into one body in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. In the context that has to be his primary ministry among us as we think about it and bringing us together in the body of Christ. He is the one who has the ministry of regeneration, sealing, strengthening, uniting us together, making us into a dwelling of God by the Spirit, chapter 2, verse 22. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. And he says here that we were called to one hope of our calling. He's discussing the hope of the believer. Our hope is an expecting hope. It's not a hope of wishful thinking. I hope to get this job. I hope my favorite sport team doesn't let me down. The Christian hope is based on the expectation that God will do what he said he will do. And God always keeps his promises. He's given us his Holy Spirit, again, also as a down payment guaranteeing our final redemption. Well, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The second triplet is found in verse 5. We see the ministry of the Son. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have one Lord, the primary confession in the church and repudiation of the confession of those who worship Caesar in Rome. As they stated, Caesar is Lord, was to instead proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. In chapter 1, we talked about the fact that it is the will of God that all things be united in him, that all things be summed up in him, that all things be brought into subject to him, to Jesus Christ. That's ultimately the will of God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, according to Philippians 2. That day is coming. But in the meantime, God is setting apart a people for himself today, a people who confess today that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's only one Lord and one faith. We have only one faith to which we cling. There's only one faith that we receive by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is this faith alone that leads to our justification before God. It is this faith alone in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord alone, that saves. For he alone is the one who, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption, the, the forgiveness of sins. This faith, as Jude says, is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
And again, we have one faith, one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's always a lot of discussion when the term baptism is used. A lot of debate as to what it refers to here. I think Paul is referring to the fact that we've been baptized into Jesus' death, spiritually baptized into his death. Paul expounds on this in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, and we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. In Ephesians, Paul calls this being, us being united with Christ. How does God save us? Well, just as he, he allowed Jesus to die, to be laid into the cross and rise again, spiritually speaking, we have now been united with Christ. And so now we have been made dead to sin through the death of Christ, and we have been risen to new life through his resurrection. That's why the word baptism is used here. Paul understood that the people of God would have understood the practice of baptism, which was around long before the New Testament church, would have helped them to understand what he meant here, that we are united with Christ by baptism. That's why when we baptize as Baptists in particular, I know other denominations do as well, but some do not, but why we as Baptists baptize by immersion, because that's the imagery that's being used here. You're not sprinkled into the death of Christ. You're buried with him through baptism. And then you rise again with him into newness of life. The third and final triplet is found in verse 6. We see the ministry of the Father, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When I preached in Ephesians before, we talked about the fatherhood of God as a theme running through Ephesians. He's father to all who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. There's a general sense in which God has a fatherly relationship to all who he's made as their creator. In chapter 3, Paul references this fact when he talks about every family in heaven and on earth deriving its name from him. But here in chapter 4, he's speaking primarily with reference to the church and the familial relationship that we have with him now that we are in Christ. Because he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and we have faith in Christ, he is now our Father. He is the Father who is over all, the sovereign ruler. He's through all. He works his purposes through all people. He's in all. He's near to us. We are in his dwelling place. He is one to whom praise is directed as he has opened the storehouses of heaven and poured out on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He is the one who chose us, who predestined us for adoption, who set us apart to bring glory to himself in Christ. He is the one to whom we pray for the wisdom to know the hope of our calling. He is the one whom we pray for strength to be able to love one another as he loves us. He is our heavenly father and all glory is due to him. The mystery of the Trinity is not something that Paul here directly expounds on. He doesn't use that term, but it's clearly in his mind. All, mem all three members of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. And all three members of the Trinity and their diverse roles that they play, both in the work of creation and in the work of recreation in the church, all three members are involved in, in the diversity of their roles, but also in their unity of purpose is reflected in the church. As we are a group of people who come from various backgrounds, various ethnicities, but we're all brought together, again, under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, under one God and Father who's over all and through all and in all. And one family. The foundation of our eager pursuit of unity is the glory of God, that God in his diverse unity would be glorified in a church that displays diverse unity. And in the final part, verses 7 through 16, which I won't read, but um, I'll just summarize here. The foundation of our eager pursuit of unity is the grace of God. It's the glory of God, but it's also the grace of God. In Christ, we've been given a measure of grace in order to see that unity is preserved. His grace is poured out on us in the form of gifts, chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. We understand this to be a reference to the gifts of the Spirit, a spiritual enablement given to each member of the body of Christ for the good of the body of Christ. His grace is also poured out on the church in the form of specific gifts 
for the church as a whole, chapter 4, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. These are people gifted in a particular way to help build up the church, to first establish the church as we saw through the apostles, and then to also help build the church. To equip the saints, he says, for the work of ministry. They're not to do all the ministry, but they equip the saints for the work of ministry. And he's poured out his grace on us in the form of gifts so that we would all grow into maturity. Verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Listen to these words that speak of maturity. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemings. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him, into Christ, him who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How do we become mature as believers? We tend to think that us and our spiritual maturity just has to do with us having our own personal relationship with Jesus and us having our own personal Bible studies at home and us having our own, you know, private prayer times. And, you know, if we go to church, it's cool. But if not, we can just, you know, it's just us and Jesus and, you know, we'll be we'll be just fine. But that's not what this text in Ephesians chapter 4 says. This text in Ephesians chapter 4 says that we reach maturity together. That God has designed the church to be that way. God has designed your faith, each of you, beloved, as a Christian, to reach maturity not apart from the body of Christ, but in the context of the body of Christ. Look at what he says just in that last verse in verse 16 from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. What are the parts? That's us. That's each one of us. When each part is working properly, what does it mean to work properly? In the context, it means to use the gifts that you've been given. When you're using that measure of grace that God has given to you through the Spirit in the body of Christ, that's when each part is working properly. And when each part is working properly... The body grows and it builds itself up in love. So if you're not growing spiritually, don't say the pastor needs to preach better. If you're not growing spiritually, don't say, you know, my Bible's broken or (laughs) whatever other excuses people might use for their lack of spiritual growth. It may be because you're not spending enough time in the body of Christ and you're not using your gifts to build up the body of Christ. And you're not around the people of God enough For them to build you up through their gifts. But if all of us are focused on that, God has gifted me. He's given me a measure of grace for you. If I'm focused on that and you're focused on that and I'm not thinking what can I get, but I'm thinking what can I give? If my focus is outward, constantly outward, and others' focus is outward, then all of us will be blessed. And there won't be a need that goes unmet. The problem comes in when we're, again, what? Just thinking about ourselves and what we need and what we want. That's the whole point of Ephesians 4. It's the duty of the whole church, each member to be a part of growing the body of Christ. The whole body, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow. The question when it comes to growing a vibrant New Testament church ministry that Christians ought to desire to be a part of is not who is your pastor. It's not how many programs are there for children. The question is, does Ephesians 4 describe your faith, your commitment to the grace that Christ has given you, your commitment to the body of Christ? Does Ephesians 4 describe you? Do you see yourself as duty-bound in Christ to be a functioning member of the body? One who's specifically and spiritually gifted as a part and one that is striving to work properly so that the whole body may grow. Are you doing that? 
I'm afraid that so much of what passes for Christianity nowadays is a heavily Americanized version. Again, we think that God is more concerned about us being the best that we can be as individuals and doing all that we can to be super spiritual individual saints of God. Again, just me and Jesus. But this text tells us that in the judgment, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ that we talked about earlier, as we're looking for that affirmation, well done, good and faithful slave, in the judgment, as Jesus evaluates our lives, one of the main things that he's going to look for to determine if we've lived in a manner worthy of the gospel is how well we've cared for the body of Christ. How we've used that measure of grace that he's given us for the body of Christ if we've been diligent and eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit, if we've made the family of God a priority in the way that Paul did, not considering our life of any account as dear to ourselves, but that we might fulfill the ministry that Christ has given us as a part of the church. If we've sought to do that in a spirit of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. If we've sought to do that knowing that God has called us to unity and love so that the gospel might be might clear, made clear to the world. Well, beloved, this is the kind of church that we ought to be here at the Catonsville Baptist Church. This is the kind of church we ought to be praying that we would be as the Catonsville Baptist Church, a church devoted to pursuing and preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, a church devoted to that because we see it as a means of living in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is the kind of church that brings glory to God who's called us for this purpose. And this is the kind of church that God can use in the world to bring people to faith in his son. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the reminder of what we must do and how we must be in the world. That we must be a people who are eager to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, that we must be a pe- people who are eager to be humble, who are eager to love, eager to be gentle, eager to submit to the power of your Holy Spirit. We must be a people who are eager to reflect the unity and diversity of the Godhead, that we must be a people who are eager to walk and to use the measure of grace that you've given us for the sake of your people, to build up your people, to reach maturity with your people. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us, that these things might be true of us here as the Catonsville Baptist Church, for your glory, our good, and the good of the community around us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.